Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Yay. So I am very excited today to have Lauren Huffman, who's probably the person who I've recorded so far that I know the best. <laughs> so sometimes I record episodes where I have never met the person before. Um, but Lauren, you, as you will find, we go back a couple years. So um, can you just let me us know first, where do you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? Yeah, so I'm actually from Columbus, Ohio. I'm currently living in Kalamazoo, Michigan for grad school. Um, and I uh, was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis about um, a little over five years ago. Yes. And let's go into that diagnosis story slash saga. What were some of your first symptoms and how did you get diagnosed? Yeah. So I had, I started having some symptoms all the way back in um, high school, really, but they were very uh, mild and manageable at that point. Um, maybe impacted me, uh, doing sports or more active things, but I would always, uh, just chalk it up like, oh, I'm a tired teenager or, uh, the doctor would maybe say, oh, just growing pains regarding joints and things like that. So I didn't think too much of it at that time. Um, but then once I was in undergrad, it kept getting worse and worse where, um, fatigue was really intense, um, joint pain, especially in first starting in my hips and knees, really, um, and low back, uh, just kept increasing and, uh, slowly impacting, uh, my ability to do things more and more. So, um, yeah, at that point I was like, uh, like, okay, something's wrong. This isn't normal. Um, and then I started to kind of seek help for it. Yeah. And how old were you at this time? Yeah. So I was, um, 20 when I first like scheduled the appointments and got like initial blood work. And then, uh, I, it was like right around my 21st birthday, really, that, 
um, a lot of this started getting rolling with the diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. And some really similar timeline to me. And some, a fun fact about you is that you are a triplet. Yeah. <laughs> just throw that out there. Uh, you're the first triplet I've had on the podcast that I know of. And did, ha, do you have any family history of any like ankylosing spondylitis or like autoimmunity? I do not. I know some uh, autoimmune conditions, especially AS are known to like sometimes have a genetic component, but no one in my family uh, that I know of has any autoimmune uh, conditions. Right. And so, and then when you were, so you were going to adult rheumatology or adult doctors, mm-hmm. right? At this time, even yeah. like, similar to me. Yeah. Yeah. Right away. Actually, it was interesting. Um, but the timeline of it, I went to the pediatrician for the last time, like in high school before college to get like, I guess, you know, your basic college, you know, physical things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then after that, I kind of was like, okay, I don't need to go to the doctor. It's fine. And even when things got like bad, I'm like, oh, I can manage um, kept kind of putting it off until that, until it really got bad. And then like, okay, schedule the PCP, uh, luckily was able to get in fairly quickly at that point, maybe a couple months out. Um, she ran blood work, um, including like ANA, things like that. And the ANA came back positive. Um, and I know sometimes that can, um, be positive even like in normal situations, but it was at a high titer and a couple different patterns and so she's like okay we're going to send you to a rheumatologist um and I actually got into the rheumatologist within just a few weeks after that and and I remember you saying that they weren't really sure initially whether it was maybe juvenile idiopathic arthritis versus rheumatoid versus ankylosing like how did you mm-hmm. get that how, how was that diagnostic kind of yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. So when I first saw the doctor, um, she actually, she first brought up lupus based on like the ANA uh, and s- some other symptoms, but then she was thinking juvenile idiopathic arthritis and AS's possibilities based on symptoms. Um, and then after doing some more x-rays as they started coming back, um, she mentioned uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, like the enthesitis related arthritis based on like evidence on x-rays. She's like, it would have taken several years for this to have shown up. And given that you had symptoms, you know, going back to high school or younger, um, you know, she mentioned the juvenile aspect and then seeing bilateral sacroiliitis with like, um, certain x-ray findings like erosions or sclerosis. Uh, she's like, this is uh, a hallmark symptom of AS, especially along with the other symptoms you're experiencing. Um, and she also mentioned that for a lot of inflammatory arthritis or autoimmune arthritis conditions, medications tend to be the same under that umbrella. Uh, so we just started going that route. Okay. And can you tell the people who don't know what is sacroiliitis? Yeah. So sacroiliitis or sacros. Is, yeah, you're good. Um, it's basically inflammation of your SI joints. Um, that can show up on x-rays sometimes as like, um, the bone being kind of worn down from inflammation and then AS likes to build it back up. And so in really severe cases of AS historically, uh, people's, you know, spines confuse, their SI joints confuse, things like that, because your immune system as after it breaks itself down in, in the joints there, wants to build itself back up. Um, and so that's kind of that cycle mm-hmm. um, of like inflammation attempting to kind of heal, I think. At least that's my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so what that feels like is uh, tenderness in your SI joints. Um, for me, a lot of times it was a sharp pain in my SI joints. So I'd be like walking and then suddenly couldn't take a step maybe. Or when I like first was experiencing symptoms or first getting under control, like even at its worst, there were some days I'd get out of bed uh, in the morning because mornings were definitely the worst with it. Um, I would like maybe take a couple steps and fall down or uh, things wow. like that. Yeah. Whereas like, oh, but in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is fine. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> That's why I think like, I always say this, like some of the toughest people I know have these conditions because we're like, this is, I'll be fine. It's yeah. Okay. I kept brushing off the symptoms and things, even when I knew, even when I had a diagnosis and was starting medications, I kept thinking, oh, this isn't that bad. Or maybe it's, it's bad, but it's manageable. And then once medication started to work, I was like, shoot, like that was, that was bad. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and I just want to make sure to point out when we say SI joint, that's the sacroiliac or sacroiliac it is, joint. Yes, it is. It, so that it, is the joint it, basically in your uh, pelvis connecting your uh, pelvis to your spine. Yeah. And it it's one that oftentimes it, even people with no other issues, that's a joint that can hurt during like pregnancy pretty commonly. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my SI joint, you know, is hurting like in your lower kind of lower back. Yeah, I have heard that because in pregnancy, not that I have any experience, but that, I mean, the health, my health background from knowing this, but um, it loosens and sometimes that can cause pain um, for people during pregnancy. Yeah, your whole body becomes like all your uh, tissues become looser, which is a weird. Yeah, that laxity. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, thank you for explaining um, what that feels like. It is, even though the medications are similar for like rheumatoid versus ankylosing spondylitis. And in, in your case, it's axial, you know, it's on your back. Mm-hmm. It's really impacting your back. The symptoms can feel different because for me, I never had back or hip pain. I've, mm-hmm. I have not had to deal with that other than neck pain from a car accident. For me, it's all been like the distal, like the tiny, you know, tiniest joints of the fingers and the toes. Um, so in, in a yeah. way it's interesting how they, they overlap, but also don't. Yeah. And like sometimes it can cause referred pain too. Yeah. Some of the pain experienced in like my hips could be referred from SI joints or vice versa. Um, oh. But for me at first and like during some of my worst flares, um, it got to a point where all, almost all of my joints were affected uh, to some degree, like including some of the more peripheral joints, which was odd because you think AS, you know, spine, but um, that was interesting too. Yeah. Under the umbrella of um spondylitis i yeah i used to always think spondylitis is always the spine mm-hmm. um, but actually you can have peripheral spondyloarthritis and you or you can have axial spondyloarthritis and you're if you're really lucky like you you can have both <laughs> right 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 like i would notice sometimes like maybe i'd be making my bed and like my wrists would hurt or pushing a wheelchair my wrists would hurt or like one time i was cleaning out a candle because i liked the jar and wanted to like put a plant in it yeah and I accidentally broke it without realizing it. Um, so I was pushing glass into one of my joints. Um, and I thought it was just joint pain, just for perspective of how bad it can get when it's not controlled. Because I was like, oh, I'm just going to push through it. This is, you know, it's just joint pain. I want this to jar. I'm like, oh, that's not the joint pain. That's glass in my joint. I am being stabbed. <laughs> I'm being stabbed. So like, it can, it's just interesting, like how, bad it can get when it's not controlled, but then how much better it can get with medications and lifestyle adjustments. A hundred percent. And 
Um, before we go more deeply into your like treatment journey and the ups mm-hmm. and downs, and I wanted to know what was your emotional response to like being getting that diagnosis? I know you said kind of you were a little bit like a, a, a common form of denial people show is being like, this is fine, this is fine, I'm fine, it's fine. No big deal. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that was a big part of it. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing when I first got diagnosed um, was one, a sense of relief because I had an explanation for why I was feeling the way that I was. Um, And then also a sense of hope because that meant medications and treatment options. And I could like move forward intentionally rather than, you know, just going down the path that I had been going on. Um, But then there also came like some grief with it as well. I think like, oh, this is going to be a long-term management situation, not a quick fix. It's not you go to the doctor, get cured and you move on. It's like, you have to have appointments every few months. You have to trial medications. You have to use those medications daily for the rest of your life, unless there is someday a cure. So it's like, even when it is well-managed, having that uncertainty also was really daunting. And then also I think being in undergrad at the time, um, it made me rethink like all my future plans and um, just how I approach things really. Yeah. And you've always been, to my knowledge, really involved in like helping the helping fields. Like you do dog, Mm -hmm. you help train dogs for, you know, becoming service animals and you've worked in hospital. You mentioned, oh, I was pushing a wheelchair. People might be wondering Mm -hmm. why. I know you're working in the hospital. Right. Medical assist. Was it a medical assistant? A patient access coordinator. So mostly admin stuff, but we would sometimes take patients to um, either whatever room in the hospital they're going in, if we were more inpatient or if I was in the outpatient setting just to their outpatient appointment. Yeah. And I remember you saying once that um, this is, I just think of, I'll I'll let you tell the story about about how Mm -hmm. um, the condition felt really, I I love this phrase that you used, soul sucking and draining treatment. And then how can you tell the story about how your doctor once you oh my gosh. did well? Yeah. That story cracked me up. Yeah. And also it gave me an interesting perspective too. Um, I think when, when I was dealing with some of the worst symptoms, like to me, like you said, that felt very soul sucking. It made me feel like I was losing who I was. Um, like I mentioned before, like it's, I think when you're diagnosed with a chronic illness or even just start having those symptoms, it's like kind of dehumanizing because you lose your ability to um, do the things you need and want to do. Um, and that's such an important part to like your identity. And so that on top of the fatigue and like the pain and other symptoms that just was so constantly draining. Um, so when I was seeing my, uh, original rheumatologist, I think I appeared maybe rather flat. <laughs> At least she mentioned like, uh, later on, she's like, Oh, I thought you just had a flat affect. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I think between that and then also I know a lot of like doctors, cause you know, this doctor was new to me at the time. I know a lot of people will say like, oh, you are acting fine. You, you are acting enthusiastic. So you must, must not feel that bad or mm-hmm. you're acting really upset. It must just be anxiety. Um, and I think that also was in the back of my mind. So I also was like not really showing my personality between not feeling it to begin with and also wanting to just be neutral. Mm-hmm. So once medications really kicked in several months after starting this process, um, she's like, oh, I thought you just had a flat, flat affect, um, but you're really enthusiastic and you're really happy. And uh, it was just, it was really telling, I think, of what um, it can do to your mental health as well. 
Yeah. And I mean, I will say that's a bit bold of that rheumatologist to literally say you had a flat affect to your face. Cause to me, yeah. that's kind of like insulting. I know. But I don't think she meant it like that. She, I really yeah. like this rheumatologist, but I think it just was like her, she was just saying her like gut, like reaction to me. She didn't realize how much it affected that. Yes, maybe yeah. I don't know. So that was an interesting. Well, and that's something that, that I appreciate about you though, is that you are, I would say like, or I, I find, I sometimes I'm like kind of swirling around with all these ideas and, and you're, you have a, I would say a calm demeanor, mm-hmm. you know? So sometimes if we're having a meeting about arthritis life stuff and I'm like, spiraling and you're like it's gonna be okay you know so maybe she was picking up that as a true part of your personality but yeah that's a good point yeah I I think yes yeah (laughs) but I think I think um, I would like go into the appointments very matter of fact and just kind of roll with it and Mm -hmm. um go with the flow because I didn't want any outside factors to impact it but also like when you were that when you're feeling that poor I think it's just hard to really show who you are because I think one factor too that a lot of people don't always realize about autoimmune conditions, at least in my experience, is the sense of malaise, which is kind of separate Mm-mm. from fatigue, but has some overlap, I think, where I like to compare it like, okay, if you have um, the flu or a cold or some other like viral illness, you're going to feel that malaise. You're going to feel under the, under the weather, um, just that general like weakness or um, discomfort. Um And I find that to be true with uh, autoimmune conditions too. It's like your immune system is fighting in both. Now in the latter, it might be fighting your body itself, but it still Mm -hmm. is fighting, which is causing that, that malaise too. Yeah. I a hundred percent. And I think there's times when my body has felt, I'll explain like my body's fatigued, but my brain's not like my brain feels enthusiastic and energetic, but my body Mm -hmm. is just fatigued. Like I can't get off the couch, but I can sit and like have a conversation with you and like, you know, engage. But when I'm, when my mind is fatigued and my body and everything's just like that sense of malaise, it's more like everything's down, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I, I think the analogy is perfect to get yeah, having the flu or something like that. Um, and yeah, I felt, I remember, you know, in 20, my kind of rock bottom <clears throat> health wise, not just related to RA, actually my RA was kind of fine at it wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible at this time, but I had other issues like 2016, 17. I remember thinking I started this blog in 2010 called the enthusiastic life.com. And I was like, nothing about me feels enthusiastic right now. Like I've, I feel robbed of my enthusiasm. Like that's, that's such a core part of my personality that even though when I started that blog, I'd had rheumatoid arthritis for six years, I still was like, well, this is something that's going to be permanent. Like I'm an enthusiastic person, but when you get to those periods where you're just, your body is just wiped out. You're like, I have nothing left. It's just, it's it, like you said, it's hard. (laughs) Right. Like it puts you in survival mode really. And then it makes you, um, at least for me also, I think being in college and undergrad, um, in some ways it made me feel like a burden because I was not able to do certain things for myself. Um, or, it's not like you're, you know, always working full time if you're, you know, a student. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I think it just is really overwhelming in that sense, trying to think about like that and then like longer term too, mm-hmm. um, and how that like impacts your identity. Yeah, that's why well, I want to definitely circle back to that because we're going to talk about how you chose 
the amazing career of occupational therapy. <laughs> yes. But first, just to tie the loop of your treatment journey, because a lot of people want to know what's it like to be on these different medications that can learn mm -hmm. from, from other stories. So what, what have what has been your treatment journey over the last five years? <laughs> yeah. So when I was first diagnosed, um, the main medication that I started was Humira. Um, that is a biologic TNF inhibitor. Um, it's a injection um, that you give yourself. For me, I ended up giving it to myself once a week. Um, and at first, like, I think the hard thing biologics, especially is it does take some time for it to um, build up in your system and to start actually making a difference. So it's not like you give yourself a shot and you suddenly feel feel okay. It's you do that over and over and over again, hoping that you eventually get some relief from it. And if not, you start over with a new biologic. Um, and with Humira, it helps with some of my really weird symptoms. Like one of my early symptoms, like um, if I would sit too long, either in the car or at a desk, um, once in a bus on the way to a trip, with undergrad, um, I I don't know if it was like inflammation pressing against nerves or something, but it felt like raindrops like going on your back. So it's like, oh, is it raining? No, it's, isn't that bizarre? I haven't really had it like yeah. since starting biologics, but I've never a, heard that. I think That's so it's interesting. almost like a variation of like numbness and tingling, but it was like along yeah. my spine. Mm -hmm. um, and that would happen relatively frequently. And then Humira wants to start taking it. Um, that symptom went away and mm -hmm. other similar weird, like I would classify weird symptoms would just like go away on Humira, but the like more impactful symptoms, like the joint pain and the fatigue, um, it, it was getting a little better, but not a whole lot better. And so at that point, my doctor was like, okay, we need to try a different biologic. I was a bit stubborn, um, initially to switch because I was like, but wait, it is doing something. What if we switch? And then I get one that does absolutely nothing. And I'm back to square one. Yep. I've had that same fear. You're not alone. <laughs> yeah. And I think for me too, it's like when I was initially diagnosed, I didn't even know what the flare was. I think because I was in a constant uh, flare, just maybe constantly increasing flare rather than the ups and downs at that point. And so I'm like, wait, I'm finally going on the down of the symptoms, finally getting some improvement. I don't want to switch, but my doctor like reassured me that it would be a smart decision to switch. Um, so she put me on Embril. Um, and also, um, I've been on some other medications too, and that I'm still on like leflunamide and meloxicam and, um, prednisone as needed, joint injections as needed, things like that. Um, but I consider the biologics to be the MVP med because those have historically made the biggest difference by far for me. So on Embril, um, that one took a few months for me to notice like any positive impact. I actually had the most side effects with Embril when starting. So the first few months I'd have that like biologic hangover where um, my fatigue would actually increase. I would feel kind of like just I don't know, not, not very good, kind of like queasy and just like yeah. not great. But then eventually, like after those few months, I stopped getting any side effects from Embril and woke up one morning, like feeling like basically normal. Um, and I've had ups and downs even on Embril, but I can remember waking up and staring at my ceiling, like, oh my gosh, like I feel so much better. And it was just mind-blowing to me what a difference it had made.
Yeah. You kind of like you said earlier too, it's like, you don't know how bad you were feeling until you start feeling better. You almost forget what normal Mm -hmm. is when you've been living with so much pain. Right. And like mentally, I think that was actually harder for me because um, I was kind of in that, again, that survival mode before of like, you know, just keep swimming, do what you need Mm -hmm. to do. It's fine. It's fine. And then it started more mentally hitting. I think once I realized uh, the difference between like it being uncontrolled or controlled um and then since then I was on Emerald for like I think four probably a little over four years I think if you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease listen up I am here for you I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident supported and connected in a matter of weeks and it's called room to thrive After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. And, um... Then I had a uveitis flare back at beginning of uh, 2023. Oh, can you tell them what uveitis is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's basically like inflammation in, in your eyes. And I'd had it a couple of times before um, where it went away quickly with like steroid eye drops or um, like prednisone and it was fine. Like it can impact your vision and make it blurry. It makes your eyes really sensitive to light. Um, they might look red and, and swollen. Um but it had never been a really huge deal for me before then. Um, but it just wasn't going away this time. And it was like 
worse than usual. Um, like I had to stop wearing my contacts. I like, it was just impacting my vision, you know, more than in the past. So at that point, uh, I ended up being switched to Simvia, which supposedly helps more with uveitis and was on prednisone for months at a time at a higher dose, which is a double-edged sword for sure. Yeah. What were, what was your body's response to prednisone? Yeah. So sometimes I'll use prednisone as like a rescue med, um, at a more moderate dose for a short burst or short period of time. And when I do that, I don't really experience side effects that I notice except feeling kind of wired. Um, but when I was on it for, um, months at a time, I had that feeling, you know, especially feeling really wired. It really messed with my, um, like sleep, um, and inability to get quality sleep. I felt like, um, like even if I slept, I just didn't ever feel well rested on prednisone. Similar but, for me. It's really, yeah. it's really the major downside, but it's hard because it helps with other things so much. Um, and yeah. then I'd never experienced like any sort of like weight gain on prednisone before, but doing it at that high of a dose for that stretch of time, I did notice that too. Um, so that wasn't fun, but yeah, that's, yeah, a lot. Uh, it's, that's a really common one. Like people mm -hmm. don't like the kind of the quote unquote moon face. Right. Or... I, yeah. And I noticed that for the first time and it, since being off of it and since tapering, I'm fine, but it, I definitely can compare pictures from the, those few months and be like, oh, there's a difference. So, yeah. well, and I know that, um, you know, on the one hand we have to we deal with the treatment ups and downs of, you know, is Menbro working? Is it not? Is Simsia going to work? There's mm -hmm. also access to medication. Oh yeah, for sure. I remember because we've been in touch. We, we meet every week, at least once, if not twice about arthritis life as people will find out more as we talk more, but mm -hmm. um, you have had to, uh, this same thing happened to me when I went to graduate school, when you move states, when you move any, you know, you have to deal with getting your meds in a new place. And, and I don't want you to have to go through the whole thing, but do you want to just share a little bit? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> 23 was a big year of changes for me across the board in my life, but especially, uh, changes within like my rheumatology care, not just switching my, my biologic medication, but, um, I, had to switch rheumatologists multiple times in 2023. Um, so I don't really feel super well established with anyone at this point. I just kind of see who I can when I can get in, which I don't love. Um, and then uh, having a harder time getting appointments, having a harder time communicating with providers. I switched my insurance over the summer. Um, and that was a huge headache with getting medications because the insurance that I switched to just kept like denying things. I think trying to push things off and push things off because biologics are really expensive. Um, and it's like, people really can't afford to pay full price for biologics. And so uh, insurance and then like copay assistance from the biologic manufacturer can help. But with the insurance, it's like, you really have to advocate for yourself or have a pharmacy team who can advocate for you to get that worked out. Um, and then since, since moving my, meds are now being shipped, um, all the way from Memphis, Tennessee. So, and I'm in Michigan, so it's, it's just interesting how that works out. Yeah. It's real good. Like a lot of people say it's a full-time job, just managing the admin of your healthcare, getting it the really is making yeah. the calls, going to the appointments, following up, um, knowing what to do if appointments get canceled or you have, mm -hmm. or, you know, anything like that. It's just, it is a lot of work on that, that side. 
and you're not, and you're going to school for occupational therapy. And I'm going therapy. to school. Yeah. Yeah. So actually let's go on to that. What, why did you choose occupational therapy as a career? Yeah. So, um, I actually first started looking into occupational therapy back, um, towards the end of high school. I was dog sitting for a family, um, cause I did a lot of dog walking and dog sitting, um, then, and, you know, still now at times, but uh, this family was like, you seem like you'd be a really good fit for OT. Do you know what it is? And I didn't really know much about it, but we had a senior project where um, I was able to set up going to actually like help out with OT and learn more about it. And um, that was really eye-opening about the lifestyle interventions and the impact of OT. So that's initially what drew me to OT. Then I went to college and was like, okay, I'm going to keep an open mind. Um, I looked into various uh, health professions because I did like the idea of health professions. Um, and I also looked into various dog things and have kept up with some, some of my dog passions too. Yes. But it was my diagnosis and experience with that that really brought me back to the field of OT. Um, I think it was eye-opening to see the difference that it made when you have a hard time doing what you need and want to do effectively. Um just how important that is to, to people uh, for their purpose and, and things like that. But then also for me, I knew my daily occupations are what kept me going, um, even at the hardest times. Like even for me, one of my biggest like uh, fun occupations would be the dog stuff. And mm -hmm. so being able to participate in that helped me um, have purpose and, you know, want to keep uh you know, working to get better and uh, school, having that as a motivation kept me as an occupation, uh, you know, also motivated me to keep pushing through a lot of the symptoms and uh, healthcare journey. So, yeah. And I, and in occupational therapy, we often refer to our meaningful activities as occupations. So mm -hmm. just so you know, you're like occupation, because a lot of times people think that means like job, right? But, um, but in our case, I, I often just think of them in a shorthand as like meaningful activities or required activities throughout the day. So all the little jobs that make up your day. Exactly. Yeah. It can be really anything that you need or want to do. So it can be as small as, you know, making yourself breakfast um, mm -hmm. or taking a shower independently. Like those are important parts to your day and being able to do those independently do, do make a difference in your ability to um, care for yourself and, uh, your self-image, things like that. And then, of course, doing those more uh, instrumental activities of daily living, like school or work or hobbies, um, social life. Again, same thing. Those, you know, bring meaning and purpose to your life, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I'm i curious, were you ever referred to occupational therapy as a patient? Even so I eventually was, but then mm -hmm. I didn't end up going again, long story short, access issues and things. Hi. However, I was much more earlier on referred to physical therapy. I think a lot of people in the healthcare professions don't always know the full scope of practice for OT, especially in the case of chronic illness. Um, and so it's overlooked. And so I think that wasn't considered, it was more of an afterthought eventually. Um, but I was initially re referred to physical therapy and sometimes my PTs would actually seem to work on some things from an OT type lens at times too. So, yeah, I mean, we do overlap and, um, 
but yeah, I'm just always curious to ask people that because we, and I know, you know, that's one of the reasons I do the work I do mm -hmm. created arthritis life is to fill these gaps in the Right. And why I'm so passionate about arthritis life too. Yeah. Yeah. And so before we move on to arthritis life, how do you define occupational therapy um, to people who don't know what it is? <laughs> that's OT. a great question. The dreaded elevator speech. I didn't tell you that before. I, 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 I'm not trying to quiz you. I just, oh yeah thought of the question now? <laughs> um, I mean, really for me, um, I explain it like as helping people um, like either rehabilitate or find accommodations or um, maybe adaptive equipment, things like that to get back to doing those meaningful activities of life. So you might be working on, uh, let's say you're having a hard time raising your blow dryer up to dry your hair after showering. So you might work, you know, with the patient on how to either help them do that activity or maybe find let's say a hanger to put your blow dryer on a hanger and then dry it that way so it's it's finding ways to still do the things you need and want to do in life in short it. it's so proud no and that's what's so great about it, is it's so practical yet um so often because it's like a double-edged sword that it's so practical because it's about those real down-to-earth everyday activities people sometimes think well wait how does there's no like masters in this field or doctorate like how would you get a doctorate in like doing stuff of daily life you know mm -hmm. but it's <laughs> but really it thinking about things from a creative approach or from um, an, a thorough understanding of health diagnoses um, and getting people back to doing those those meaningful things and so um, I think just like how we have to often advocate for ourselves with chronic illness the OT profession providers really need to advocate for themselves too to make their voice heard so that yeah. our scope of practice is understood and so that we can make the difference for patients. Because like you were saying, um, there are gaps in, in care um, and OT really can make a big difference in the world of chronic illness, um, especially with auto autoimmune arthritis. Um, there's so many lifestyle interventions and strategies that can be used to make life better. Um, I know for me, it's like I go to the doctor do tests, you know, x-rays, blood work, get diag diagnosed. Uh, and it's kind of like, okay, good luck. Take these medications mm -hmm. and see you later. But that doesn't account for the several months in between medications before you find something that works where um, you're like, okay, I can't do this or I can do it and it hurts. Um, what do I do? You're kind of stuck. Um, mm -hmm. And so OT can really step in and help with those things. Um, but I think there's just, you know, again, gaps where people don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the barriers because it's a lot of the healthcare system is not set up for preventative care. Yeah. Or um, management care. It's like, if you're not getting better, if it's a progressive condition. Yeah. Like, the only I... place it's being done really that I know of is diabetes, where you get to see like a certified diabetes educator. And like, in mm -hmm. a way I'm like, I'm an arthritis educator. Like I you just are. decided Absolutely. to create my job and I do yeah. it now. And it's a necessary yeah. job. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, I'm so glad that I can't, I can't even remember how you, you, I encountered you first as a volunteer. Yeah, well, even before that, so I guess if we're going back in my story to that point, like I yeah. graduated undergrad in the pandemic and mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'm immunocompromised. Um, I don't know much about COVID because it was early on. I mean, it was literally, mm -hmm. I graduated maybe two or three months after COVID started. Oh, I forgot that. Two, two wow. months, not even too much. Cause COVID started. I remember I had my last day of in-person classes, um, March 7th of 2020. And I graduated, mm -hmm. um, 
I think the very beginning of May. It may have wow. It may have been May 1st, if I'm remembering correctly, or somewhere around then. And so at that time I'm like, okay, don't know what to do as far as like uh, you know, my future plans. Like I was still thinking OT. Um, but I'm like, do I really want to do all online classes or mostly online classes for a doctorate program where you're working hands-on with patients? Or do I want to, you know, do something else in the meantime? And then I also considered, okay, don't, I know a lot about OT, but I don't know everything. What if my condition gets worse and I can't be the provider I want to be? Is it smart to, you know, take these years and spend the money to go to school and then not be able to do it? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course, I know there's so, there's such diversity that an OT profession, you can really, you can do all kinds of things, but that was a consideration. And then um, some other things um, made me feel like it just wasn't the right time. And I needed to make sure I was in a stable situation and not go straight to grad school at that time. So um, I ended up getting, so I continued working with some dog training stuff. I taught some dog training classes uh, during COVID, especially um, online with teaching people how to train their dogs. A lot of people got COVID puppies with something to yeah. do uh, during the pandemic. So I was able to teach a lot of people virtually. Um, and then I got a job at the hospital, which I know that sounds counterintuitive. It's like, oh, it's COVID. Why are you going to work at the hospital? Um, and I ended up doing an admin, more so admin side um, with that because there were still barriers uh, between you and patients most of the time. Um, and I felt like, okay, even though COVID, you know, you see a lot of patients in the hospital, hospitals are strict with wearing masks. So you and your patient had to both have masks on. Um, there had to be usually some sort of divider. And also the patients I saw for what I was doing, it was very brief periods of time. So not long enough to really get exposed to COVID typically. Um, so it felt pretty safe. And then I was also able to get my vaccine uh, right away when it came out. So from that point, I was like, okay, I'm getting healthcare experience in this way and not feeling like I might be like missing out on education um, by doing that remote uh, only. Um, and then around that time, I also started, uh, I did start a remote uh, program with assistive and rehab technology. Um, Cause I'm like, this relates to OT and it, that one was only offered online anyway. And tuition was paid for by my job. So I'm like, why not? So that's pretty much what I did for a while in the pandemic was classes for that and yeah. uh, working in the hospital. So still progressing towards OT without diving in right away. Mm-hmm. So I guess going back to like the initial, like how we got connected, um, I was like, okay, I need to learn more about OT. I actually came across your account and have been following for a while. You would put things in your stories where I'd like reply. I think oh, all yeah. the <laughs> comments, questions, any feedback. Um, I was like very active with that. And then one day I think I just said, Hey, can I meet with you? Can I talk with you and get your perspective on being an OT with autoimmune arthritis? Right. Because that's not a common thing. Um, and so I think we met and just, it went from there, started volunteering and the rest Yay. of history. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you, brain fog for me. <laughs> I not remember. That was a very uh, scattered story to explain all of that, but it's no, 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 no. It all relates though. And I often do tell people who are considering OT, it's, it's good to have some work experience before starting. Mm-hmm. I think it, especially in like either an educational setting, like a school you know, based setting or a hospital or healthcare setting, just because the people I found in my program 
who went straight from undergrad to grad school without having any external work experience. Sometimes it just, you don't have a realistic sense of like what might actually be possible, you know? Totally. And it was hard at first too, because in the pandemic, I couldn't get additional observation hours. Oh, right. My yeah. very first sort of observation hours were back in high school, um, but it was only in a pediatric, pediatric hospital setting, which was cool, but I knew there's so much more to OT than that. And I really wanted to see that, um, especially because I wanted to see, okay, is this, is this really feasible for me to pursue? Um, and I couldn't get those observation hours and I didn't really want to jump right into OT if I couldn't do some more observing. So during that time, I was able to observe all kinds of settings eventually, you know, once a lot of the uh, precautions were lifted. Um, and then, of course, we talked and that really made me feel better about still pursuing OT despite um, my diagnosis. So, yeah. And for those listening who might be interested in a career in occupational therapy versus like physical therapy, one of the things that really differentiates us is that occupational therapists can work in a completely mental health setting where mm -hmm. you're not doing any physical disabilities at all and you're not having to do anything hands-on versus I think my understanding I'm not aware of any PTs um, that that do fully mental health. They're always doing something to do with the physical disabilities is, is my understanding. And so that's something that was attracted me to occupational therapy mm -hmm. versus physical therapy. But back yeah. to, you know, well, um, on oh, that yeah. note too, before oh, yeah. we continue, I like that component too, because that mental part is often so overlooked um, mm -hmm. across the board, but especially in like rheumatology of how it impacts yes. you to have so many things stripped away from you. And so being able to, one, work on mental health with patients, it, it is easier on your body, um, but also it's a more holistic approach. Um, I mean, there, there are other uh, healthcare uh, settings are holistic too in a lot of ways, but I think OT especially considers the whole person in that sense. Mm -hmm. So that's that's pretty cool, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just, for those also listening, um, everything we're saying is for you listening, but also, uh, <laughs> I do, as my capacity allows, I do take volunteers, especially people who want to go to uh, occupational therapy school. I have a couple I've written recommendation letters for, including you and Elsie. Mm -hmm. Hi, Elsie, if you're listening and uh, Jessica. And so if you are interested, just email me at um, info at myarthritislife.net. I don't make like a huge thing about it. It's just been more like organic, like people have contacted me, but it's it's a good way to get like observation, like a non-traditional setting. But yeah, so yeah, when I met you, I was like, oh, some, you know, this is great because she seems like a nice person with a good head on her shoulders. And <laughs> like she has experience, you know, in, with patient experience, you mm -hmm. know, with ankylosing spondylitis and um yeah and, it's the best of both worlds really yeah yeah and like I would love to hear more from your perspective you know um what what is the value of some of the programs and the stuff that that we do at at arthritis life yeah arthritis question life is incredible and you know for those listening Cheryl is incredible um oh thank you <laughs> just I think for me, what makes arthritis life so special is the amount of um, care and thought you, you've put into the programs. It's so comprehensive. Um, I mean, like you, Cheryl, you've thought of everything that a patient could need in their toolkit. Like it, that, I mean, it feels like that to me because you get diagnosed and are often left on your own for so many things, but you consider how it impacts every little part of your life. And then make sure that people get the support that they need or the resources they need to like 
keep moving forward or to have hope or at least a real realistic sense of hope. So you're enthusiastic with your programs, but also like not having toxic positivity. And you're not saying, okay, you're going to be cured. You're giving very tangible ways to improve like your life mm -hmm. or like new perspective for people, um, especially like the acceptance and commitment therapy perspective. Mm -hmm. um, all of that I think is, is really useful, but um, the self-paced program has a lot of educational content. And then you get that, of course, um, with Room to Thrive, plus the support groups, which I think provides that um, safe space where you can connect with others who get it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it can be great to talk with friends and family about um, what you're going through, but they might not always totally understand um, and so to be able to talk with somebody who gets that or a group of people who get that facilitated by somebody who gets it and understands the healthcare side of things and the OT lens, um, I think that makes it really unique. And then as far as podcasts go, oh, yeah. um, I think there's so much value in, in sharing uh, people's stories, um, you know, just to make people feel like they're not alone, maybe again, new perspectives on things um, and really connect people. Yeah. Well, and thank you. And it's, it, it is definitely the, the genesis of like the room to thrive core program that I developed really is, it is from the gap that I saw, you know, that mm -hmm. patients were like you mentioned, they're just given one 20 minute appointment and then left on their own. It's just not, that's not a recipe for success for a right. chronic complex right. condition. And like we've talked, like this is the the resource that it's like, you know, we wish we had this when we were diagnosed kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to share that with people. So they're, they're um, you know, again, having a sense of direction and not going down rabbit holes and misinformation. Um, I think it's, it's so useful and so oh, practical. Thank, thank you. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I do, you know, I'm trying to do a better job of explaining to people what, what is available, you know? So like, like you mentioned, there is the room to thrive self-paced program where you can go through the lessons. It's a whole set of comprehensive, you know, lessons on how to manage pain and fatigue, how to manage habits. Cause that's one of the most confusing areas, like nutrition, exercise, sleep, rest, like how do you manage all those things and how do they actually help your condition potentially. Right. And then what strategies to use if you're struggling yes. in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. And then the mental side and the social side of things, mm -hmm. and then how to connect back to our values and valued activities, and then how to manage those, you know, executive functioning parts mm -hmm. of the chronic illness experience. Like we talked about earlier, advocating for yourself, you know, um, it, making the most of your appointments, planning, preparing. So it really is meant to be like the orientation manual. And mm -hmm. it doesn't just mean orientation for newly diagnosed because most people have never gotten access to this kind of program before. So like actually my testimonials from people who've had the disease for like five to 10 years or longer are actually often stronger testimonials than the people who are newly diagnosed, which at first surprised me. But then I realized, oh, it might be because the people who've had it longer have had to struggle longer. Exactly. Oh, yeah. totally. They realize they realize the gaps um, more fully yeah. and where they've had to uh, problem solve or not be able to problem solve. I hear so many people say like, oh, you can overcome like X, Y, and Z diagnosis and, you know, do whatever you want to do. And that's not always the case. And so being able to actually equip mm -hmm. people with resources 
um, at any point in their diagnosis um, with a chronic illness, I mean, that can make a big difference. Yeah, well, and thank, I mean, at this point, I just want to say thank you to you too for helping because not only did you help, for, you know, for a couple of years as a volunteer to help just kind of, um, you know, everything from mm-hmm. helping make quote posts from the podcast, you know, social media content to now I, you know, you have a part-time, you know, contract mm-hmm. gig helping with the, so do the, the back end of the programs, which is a lot, a lot of work goes into um, the room to thrive, you know, especially the support group, you know, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. So I, I think appreciate- people will be amazed if they realize just how much work goes into all like arthritis life, uh, content and resources, yeah. but, um, being able to be behind the scenes gives me that really interesting perspective. And then it's so meaningful, um, because again, that OT lens plus rheumatology. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I just, I'm also so honored to be a part of it. Really. It's such a highlight mm-hmm. for me. Oh, thank you. No, I'm, I'm so grateful. And I, you've definitely given me, I would say a lot of, in my head, I label them as like sanity checks, which mm-hmm. what I mean is like, if I'm anxious about something, you know, you've been able to, uh, either reassure me or say, yeah, I agree. That's a problem. You know, that's yeah. something you should do something about, or, um, that's, I think you, like I mentioned earlier, calm demeanor is something that I appreciate. Cause I definitely, I think we're both enthusiastic about our work, but mm-hmm. we have different kinds of like, uh, like mine enthusiasm sometimes spirals into anxiety, mm-hmm. which maybe, maybe if yours does, you do a better job of managing it than I do. Well, I think <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, one, because arthritis life is your baby. And two, yeah. um, I mean, people can, uh, you want to be careful how you approach some things because people can take it the wrong way when you don't mean it that way, or you want to make sure you're servicing people appropriately. Oh, so I think, you know, having a certain level of anxiety when you are um, helping people in that way, it makes sense. So, yeah. See, you just reassured me right now. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I love and, it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's so much more we could say about your story. Um, and about arthritis life, but I also, I don't want to go to the rapid fire questions before asking you a fun question, okay. which is I'm sure it ca- crossed some people's minds when you mentioned earlier, service dog training and training. Mm-hmm. Just how did you get involved in like the dog training world in, in general? Yeah. So my uh, story first, with dogs. Yeah. yeah. What, what I was just going to say, I mean, I'm asking two questions, but how did you get involved? And then what are some tips like quick tips for people who might be struggling Mm -hmm. with like managing the leash or like the physical demands of dog having a dog yeah so going my story with dogs goes way back um you know first starting with when I was a kid I had a dog walking business I I actually first yeah so when I was 10 years old I started walking dogs for a couple families um in my neighborhood and other neighbors in in that vicinity kept seeing me walk other people's dogs all the time. Um, Plus we had uh, one dog that I got when I was nine. Um, So they would see me out with all these dogs. And then eventually they figured out that I, you know, would walk dogs after school. Um, And so more and more people kept asking me to walk their dogs after school. So usually for like one or two hours after school, you know, I get home and then walk the dogs. And I think that was really, um, I don't know. I just, I fell in love with dogs so much. I mean, I loved dogs even before them, but that really uh, made me fall in love with dogs and then saved up money from that and got my own, um, you know, aside from the family dog, you know, my own dog in the family that I could train or do whatever I wanted with. 
And from there, after doing a lot of, you know, trick training and other fun stuff for a few years, one of my best friends in school convinced me to join uh, 4-H. I don't know if people really know what 4-H is unless they've, you know, been in it necessarily, but it's, it's kind of like Girl Scouts, if you've ever, if you know Girl Scouts or other like club type activities, except with this area of 4-H, it was all, all dogs. So anything that I was doing in 4-H really was focused on dog stuff. And so I started with therapy dogs. My dog uh, took like the Canaan Good Citizen test and we started visiting nursing homes, libraries uh, with pet pals with 4-H and showing in obedience um, in 4-H, uh, agility, showmanship, all kinds of things. And that really continued to connect me to people and, and foster my love of dogs. Um, from there in college, I began uh, fostering service dogs and training with a program. So I raised yeah. a few and that really showed me about what it looks like to take a um, dog in public and what accessibility is like for that and how it can help people uh, with various diagnoses. I mean, most of the training I would do at that point was very basic. Um, basic manners, public access training, um, really getting the dog started off on the right paw, so to speak. Yeah. But let me just say that that's basic training is a lot. I mean, oh, it is. I yeah. only have ever had, I've always wanted a dog. I finally got my little Cavalier King Charles, which is like known for being like the easiest, like, right. They're <laughs> kind of like the easiest dogs. Like they're so sweet and eager they're to so please. Sweet. And, um, even that was a lot of work though, that in, to just do the basic obedience class. I, I feel never... like sometimes the basics can actually be harder than the more advanced stuff because by the time you get to the more advanced stuff, typically if it's your own dog, you've built a bond to them, or even if it's not and you're say training and program dog, at least they still have that foundation. And so they have learned how to learn. They, um, a lot of these dogs, you know, they love to work. They love to have a job, um, you know, and if they don't, and if it doesn't work out, then they can be adopted out um, mm -hmm. as a pet or a career changer to do a different line of work, maybe if they're a higher drive dog. Um, so, yeah. And then just to let people know very quickly, there is a big difference, a huge difference between a service animal and a therapy dog. Absolutely. There so is. Can you tell them that? <laughs> yes. Tell yeah. Them. And then like emotional support dogs too. Oh, great. Um, so they're each a distinct area and there can be some overlap between each, but really with service dogs, um, they must be, to be a service dog, they must know at least one task that mitigates a disability. So you can, you know, have a dog that does a bunch of tasks. Maybe they can uh, open a door or take off socks or, um, you know, other things that might be helpful, but if you don't have a disability, it's still not a service dog. Or you might have a disability, but your dog, you know, doesn't know any specific tasks that makes your life easier having that disability, then it still isn't considered a service dog. Um, so when you go out in public with, you know, a service dog, employers can ask, is this a service dog um, required because of a disability? Um, yes or no question. And then what tasks does it perform? And they can't ask you anything else, um, you know, as far as invasion of privacy goes. They can't ask you for a diagnosis. They can't ask you for a doctor's note. Um, but it does have to perform a task for a disability. Um, therapy dogs, they um, are, you know, they have to pass certain tests depending on what organization you certify through service dog you don't actually have to have a certification truly there's 
I think the service dog world can, it has room for growth in some of those areas, but there's lots of barriers and, you know, that would be a whole nother podcast, but um, therapy dogs do have to be certified through organizations. And so um, I think that's partially because, you know, they're interacting with the public with many people. And so they need to be very safe from a liability standpoint. Um, therapy dog programs typically have liability insurance. And so with a therapy dog, you might be asked to visit a setting like a hospital, um, hospice, library, nursing home, um, support group, things like that um, to help bring comfort to um, people who, who could use some comfort. Maybe after a traumatic event, you know, you might go to a school um, or, you know, somewhere else to, to bring that comfort um, for people. And so the dogs, you know, they need to know basic obedience and manners. Uh, they shouldn't be like tackling people and no, you know, growling at people, anything that could be hazardous. Um, mm -hmm. But they don't technically need to know tasks. Although I have found that having tricks or tasks can make therapy dogs better. Well, and there, the thing that I'm needing to work with Teddy on, because I did want to, when I got him, my, my goal was to train him to be a therapy dog. And then COVID happened, which I should have used that time better. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but it was hard too, because socializing is, is tough during right. COVID. So yeah. And the thing for him, it's not just about like, are they aggressive? It's also like, he's actually such an enthusiastic social dog that he has a really hard time with like mm -hmm. a calm greeting. Like Tr is Truman is working on that too. Yeah. <laughs> Who's Truman? Truman is my golden retriever. He actually just heard me say his name and woke up <laughs> and is walking over to me now. I know if you're listening to the podcast, you yeah. can't see, but if you're, if you're watching on YouTube, on YouTube, go on YouTube to watch this he's part. so funny. He just oh, literally woke up and crawled over to me. Oh, little puppy. Oh, he got him tangled in my headphones. <laughs> Let's see if I, if Teddy will. Oh, Teddy, I just saw him. He's sleeping there on the go. bed. He's uh, my little pup. Teddy is uh, looking at me now. I'm going to bring him over too. <laughs> Hi, you want to go on the podcast? Yeah, you're just a little teddy bear. He's yeah. sleepy because he Aww. just woke up from hearing me talk about him. <laughs> um, he is so sweet. so sweet. He is a year and a half old, um, almost, not quite actually. Um, oh, but right. um, yeah, he's 16 months right now. So he sometimes still acts like a puppy. Um, <laughs> but he... It's pretty much full grown and he's my dog. So after raising uh, goldens and golden crosses um, for various programs, and you know, I loved other breeds too from dog sitting and other experiences, but goldens really uh, won my heart over mm -hmm. through the service dog training. And I'm like, I need one that I don't have to give back. Um, yeah. And so um, after some networking uh, and waiting and Truman uh, came into my life and he's just the best. He He's brings so, me so much joy. He's so sweet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, we should definitely do a separate episode just about dog stuff. I know oh, we yeah. talked about that before, but are there, uh, one thing people ask me about a lot is like hands-free leashes. Like yeah, I use one with Teddy, but he's only 20 pounds. Like, are there any just quick tips for, yeah. Arthritis? Yeah. For, yeah. So like you were saying, hands-free leashes can be really helpful. Um, like if you're having uh, pain in your hands or wrists, especially, um, you know, I have found that like, it can be easy to drop a leash, you know, if that's happening. Um, Cause if you have, you know, pain, a sharp pain, especially it might just uh, slip out of your hand on accident or things like that. So having a hands-free leash can really alleviate um, the pain and the stress of that. Um, so there's 
a few that I like that you can actually uh, have like a belt around your waist. Um, that's how high I have. Too. Yeah. yeah. So I like that one a lot. I have a couple of different hands free leashes. So ones like that, I think can be helpful. Um, I have heard some people say like, oh, but if my dog pulls and I have them, you know, attached to a belt on my waist, they're just going to pull me over. And so that is partially, you know, knowing your dog in your situation, what might be appropriate and what's not, um, you know, of course, working towards teaching, um, a loose leash walking will help with that too. So, um, but another one that you can use an alternative would be one that kind of goes over your shoulder. Um, so you're not having that pressure around your waist. So it will depend on your symptoms, um, and your dog, but those are a couple options that I like, and we can put some links, uh, to products, uh, after the podcast, but those are useful. Um, I like getting enrichment toys that are easy to clean. So it's not Mm -hmm. a hassle things that have larger openings. Um, and then for grooming, like I have a raised grooming table because it's harder. It's really hard in your back to bend over for bathing and for grooming nail trims, uh, things like that, that can be really taxing on your body. Um, so I have a raised grooming table that I love. Um, and I don't personally yet have a raised tub. So if I want to use a raised tub, I usually go to a pet store um, that offers those. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can get your own raised tub for uh, pretty inexpensive. That can also save your back um, and other joints. Um, Or, you know, knowing your limitations, don't don't be afraid to uh, have a groomer help you out with things too, of course. Yeah, uh, delegating that. Oh, yeah. One's falling down. Um, yeah, we have a, we're lucky enough to have a laundry room sink so I can bathe Teddy. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. My smaller dog, um, I used to have Shih Tzu's and we would bathe them in the sink sometimes too, yeah, to save our backs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that with Truman. <laughs> yes. Um, he, yeah, he wouldn't mind, but that would be, that would be messy. <laughs> um, and then another thing too, that I think is useful, um, managing, uh, like arthritis and dog ownership, even if you don't have, even if your dog isn't a candidate for a service, being a service dog, or you don't feel like you need mm-hmm. a service dog for public access, there are like some commands you can still teach your dog that might help you out. Um, a couple of my favorite, like if if you struggle to bend over or don't want to keep bending over frequently, um, maybe you're having a bad back day or something, have you know your dog jump on um, some sort of raised platform. I personally mm-hmm. let Truman on like my couch and things. Um, yeah. so I don't, I know some, some people have different preferences, but I'll ask him to jump on my couch sometime so I can put on his collar without bending over. Nice. Um, or you can train your dog just to put their paws up on a chair to have, um, easier access to them. Nice. Um, there's a harness that I like that has a magnetic closure where you just pull a tab and like, Oh my gosh, like, oh, like magnet, like that's not sturdy enough. My dog will, my dog's too strong for a magnet, but no, this magnet is like, it's, it's secure. Um, so we can put a link to in the bio for that too. Nice. I have no connections to like endorse these things. These are just my experience with these products. Yeah. Um, so I like that. And then there's also a product called like the treat and train, um, where maybe let's say you are, um, a wheelchair user, or you're trying to do some more mm-hmm. distance work and you don't want to be walking back and forth as much. Um, that can be something that you can use too. Uh, nice. on, on teaching giving your dog treats without you know bending over a lot or you know using your hands as much um Perfect. So. that's great well th- thank you for those and I know that um 
you know, that people will probably have follow-up questions for you. So we'll make sure to share your social media links and such later, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's time now for our rapid fire questions. So the first one is, would you do anything differently if you were diagnosed today? Yeah, if I could, the number one thing I would do is, um, you know, start uh, using Arthritis Life resources. So immediately, oh. my, yeah, <laughs> I think the you. best thing that you could do would be joining Room to Thrive. And like anyone listening, Cheryl did not tell me to say that. I seriously I wow. think it is like such a valuable resource that like if I could go back, that would be the first thing that I would do. Because again, you're not seeing this information. You're not having either toxic positivity or going down, you know, two negative mm-hmm. uh, routes either. Um, so that's the main thing. I think the other thing too, is knowing, like, I think it, it can, and, you know, it, it can get better. I think for me, I was like, oh, this is bad now. And it can be, pro- it's, you know, progressive lifelong condition. It's just going to get worse or how bad, yeah. much worse will flares get. And like, for me, my life has improved so much since my diagnosis. Like people think like, oh, you get diagnosed and then then it's, it's bad, but my life has gotten so much better since then. Um, So that's another thing I would like just tell myself if I could go back in time and say that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Those are the main things that come to mind. Well, and that's, you kind of got two questions with one, two birds with one stone, because I was going to ask the best words of wisdom. For a newly diagnosed, but I guess you covered that. Is there anything else you would want to say to a newly diagnosed patient? Um, yeah, I think just knowing that change can be, you know, slow and it takes time. It's not mm-hmm. always going to be linear. So you might get better and then you might get worse. Um, medications might work and then they might lose efficacy. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Uh, do yeah. what you need to do to keep going. Um, even when it's overwhelming. Yeah. I love, I love that. Just keep swimming. Yeah. Do you have a favorite arthritis gadget or tool in your toolbox? Yeah. So it kind of, it varies depending on my needs, but I love my heated blanket and heating pad like that. Um, like I sometimes can be heat sensitive, like when the air is hot, but like Otherwise, like that heat, that warmth, that gentle warmth feels so good on my joints mm-hmm. um, and the muscles too, if they end up getting stiff. So that's lovely. Um, I have found that when I'm flaring and like if my shoulders or back is making it more challenging to get dressed using like um, stretchy sweaters, um, mm-hmm. like I'm feeling good today, but I am wearing a stre- stretchy sweater. It's, it's so much easier to put on and so cozy. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that. Anything a little bit oversized to take on and off can be easier. Um, I like to use the notes app in my phone to like prepare for appointments because I think like we've talked about earlier, um, maybe not on the podcast, but it's like sometimes when you do get better and get out of flares, you forget, um, when things are worse or you might like have questions that you forget. So taking those as notes on your phone can be a quick and accessible way to like bring those up at appointments later. Um, uh, making sure to pace myself, uh, by, you know, taking breaks um, as needed, especially to like get up and move. So like exercise snacks, Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people think arthritis and they're like, oh, so like, it's hard to move. Right. And it can be. Um, but like in my experience, it's like that movement helps significantly. And so it's hard because you're getting mixed messages from your body. Yes. Like your body might be saying, oh, I'm stiff. This hurts. Don't move. Or, oh, I'm fatigued don't mm-hmm. get out of bed. Whereas that movement and then, you know, getting out of bed can actually help that pain and fatigue. Um, at least when you're, you know, more controlled on medications. 
If you're not, then it can be a different story. I mean, I think you can push yourself too hard with exercise and make um, the symptoms worse. But those exercise snacks, um, you know, making sure I give myself plenty of time uh, in the mornings, especially because mornings can be harder. Those are, I think, my favorite uh, strategies and gadgets and things. Love it. Do you have a favorite book or movie or show you've been consuming recently? Yeah. So I have a whole stack of books that I will love to get to. Um, I love learning new things. And then also books to be a nice escape um, when life gets hard with chronic illness. But mm-hmm. I've been so busy with school and things that I haven't been able to get to my pile of books as much. But I do hope to soon, mostly um, textbooks lately. Ugh, yeah, I don't miss that. School I mean, life. I love learning about arthritis, but yeah, to learn about other stuff that you're not interested in is challenging. Yeah, well, and then I think there's also a difference between saying, okay, you have to read X, yeah. Y, and Z chapters versus like reading a book that like you just want to pick up and learn more in that moment, more spontaneous. So, um, yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite book? Um, I don't know that I really have a favorite off the top of my head. (laughs) There's one book, um, on my list right now, something about like, uh, sharing your stories, like September letters or something. I have no idea if it's good or not, but it sounded good. So I got it. That's kind of my next, like to read. I think I also love reading dog books. I'm such a dog nerd. Oh my gosh. I remember one of the best dog books I read was like the other side of the leash. Mm. And it's about like, it's about human behavior. Why do we act the way we do around dogs? And like, how do dogs interpret that? Like, yes, that looks so cool. Such a good one. It's like about how we're like primates and we're so like handsy and like Mm -hmm. dogs like don't like are not exploring the world that way, but like we still can't help this being like, yeah, I love So much of dog training is training the human. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Uh Um, do you have a favorite mantra or inspirational saying that helps you? Yeah. So not necessarily directed, uh, specifically to arthritis, although it can be interpreted in that lens, but I love the saying, like we rise by lifting others. Mm. Um, and I think that can be relevant, like in our case with, you know, what we try to do with helping people, uh, with rheumatic conditions, um, thrive, um, yeah, you know, yeah, we, course, yeah. we, uh, I think help, you know, we, we, we lift others up in that. And so I think that helps, at least for me, that helps me also, it brings me more hope in it. Um, yeah. So I just like that saying we, we rise by lifting others. One. I love that one. And then what has been bringing you joy right now? Um, yeah. So of course, arthritis life brings me joy. <laughs> Yay. Um, my friends and family bring me joy. Um, Sometimes schools can be, it can be a lot of work, but being able to work towards a career that's so meaningful, meaningful to me, that brings me a lot of joy. Um, and then of course, mm. um, dogs in general, but especially Truman and spending time with him, training, cuddling, whatever, um, yes. that, and then talking about dogs, that all brings me so much joy too. Oh, dogs are the best. Um, what does it mean to you to live a good life and thrive with rheumatic disease? Um, so, uh, thriving with rheumatic disease, I think finding joy in the little things sometimes, I think when you are going through a lot of hard symptoms, it it strips so many things away, makes you see things in a different perspective of just how meaningful it is to, you know, make a cup of coffee or Mm -hmm. to pet your dog or, um, you know, again, you know, just any, taking a walk, any of that, it means so much more when you know how hard it is when you struggle. 
Um, yeah, yeah. So I think being able to appreciate the little things um, and showing up for yourself on good days and bad days. And so um, that means, you know, if you're having a good day, you know, doing school, life, whatever. But if you have a bad day, trying not to be, you know, too hard on yourself, um, giving yourself a break if you need and taking care of yourself in a way that helps you uh, to be resilient and bounce back. I love that. Oh, I have to remember that every day. And then uh, I think also on that same note, I just thought of another thing. Um, thriving with rheumatic disease also, I think, means not giving up on your passions. Because, mm-hmm. you know, for me, at a time where I could decide on so many things about my future, I was able to keep pursuing what I was passionate about mm-hmm. despite that. And for me, that felt like thriving. Again, I, I know we talked about like, um, it's okay if you can't quote overcome Mm-hmm. things that's not a, a character flaw that's not something necessarily in your control but being able to like not give up despite those yes. challenges I, yeah. do, I do think that is something that uh is thriving I I totally I totally agree um and where can people find you online yeah so I am not online a ton right yeah. now just because uh-huh. life gets so busy except for mainly I'm, I'm online on Instagram so I have my own Instagram account um, that I post anything from you know big uh, life things to yes. little life joys uh, pictures usually um, mm-hmm. and then uh, I have a dog Instagram as well so right now it's Truman focused but I hope to eventually as, as time permits um, do more videos on that and maybe even incorporate, uh, you know, life with, with disability, or like, yes. like how to thrive with arthritis with, um, dog ownership and things like that. That's such a huge area. Um, and your Instagram is Lauren Huffman 16. It is. Yeah. And then yeah. my dog Instagram is Truman blue underscore and friends. Oh, wait, because I- sometimes I'll post other dogs and things on it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I do think the dog world is so, so cool too, because people can do dog sports at any age. And, um, even with disabilities, I've seen people do even agility. You you might think like, oh, you have to run alongside your dog and be active, but you can teach your dog distance work. Um, and I've seen people in wheelchairs do agility still. So, um, it's just cool to see what's out there. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time to share your story here. I know that even though I know you're really passionate about it, it still takes emotional labor to go through all the details of your diagnosis journey and, you know, what you've been through. So, um, and, you know, I know the occupational therapy profession is, is lucky to have you. So thank thank you you so much. And uh, hopefully people will follow up with you if they have more questions or they can always find, um, all, by the way, I'm trying to say this more so people know on uh, every episode, there's a page on my, or uh, there's a post on my website for every episode that has the full transcript and a link to the YouTube video. So you can, if you're interested in like watching the video of us talking and, and our dogs. Yeah. Um, and you can also, um, see all the links to everything. Yeah. We'll we- put links to helpful products and things like Yay. that. So Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. 
You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you.